All right, a quick order of business before we get started this morning. I asked Brian to turn on these lights. It brings a little more light up front, but we got a two-for-one deal this morning with the Batman Spotlight. So I, I want to take a quick poll really quick. Should we leave this on? We don't care about a Batman Spotlight, or should we cut this off? That's a distraction. Really quick, raise your hand. Everybody's voting. Leave the lights on and ignore this. Raise your hand. And cut the lights off and uh, get rid of this Batman spotlight. Raise your hand. All right, we're leaving the lights on. All right. All right. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. And as you're turning there, let's call on the name of the Lord again this morning. Let's lift up our hearts to God and let's ask for grace and mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today in the name of our great mediator, our Lord Jesus. And you are such a good God. Lord, you're a God of triumph. And we just sang it, Lord. And it's true, God, that you work in all things. You work all things for good. For those who love you. For those who are called according to your purpose. There's nothing in our life that you waste. Not even our suffering. And so, Lord, we pray that this time would not be wasted. We pray that you would redeem it. We pray that you would glorify your holy name. And we ask, Lord, that your truth would reign in our hearts and in your church. And that it would go forth from your word. And we ask for eyes to see and for ears to hear and for hearts to receive your word this morning. God, we ask for mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Human beings were made for God. And I know that's about the most basic thing that you could ever know in all the world. But it's true. Our deepest satisfaction, our highest good, and our eternal happiness is to know God. To know the one for whom we were made. We are designed as human beings like no other creatures in God's world. You have been wonderfully made, and I hope you know it. God can only be known through revelation. In other words, God is so high and so great that no one can peer into his layer to pry into heaven to know God. God has to reveal himself. And human beings are distinct from all other creatures of God that we have been fashioned and made with a capacity to receive God's revelation, to know God. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God, that you are fit and fashioned to know the one for whom you were made, to receive his revelation, to know and to love the God who made you. You have this capacity because you are made in the image of of God. The Bible tells us that nothing else will satisfy the human heart besides God who made it. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that God has planted, has placed eternity in the hearts of man. You have been stamped. You have been tattooed, you could say, with eternity in your soul. You were made not for time, but for eternity, not for this world, but for God. Made in the image of God. 
And so I want to speak to you this morning about two books. These two books are the only, you know, we throw around the term, man, you've got to read this book, okay? The two books that we're going to talk about this morning are the only two must-reads that have ever been written. You say, wait a second, I thought we were a Bible church. Well, you're talking about two books. I'm, I'm on guard already. Well, stay on guard. Always stay on guard. You know, examine these things to see if they're so. We're going to talk about God's two books this morning. And they're necessary and they're must-reads because these are the only two books through which God reveals himself. It's through these two books alone that we come to know the one for whom we were made. The first book is the book of nature. The second book is the book of scripture. And God reveals himself in both of these books. Through God's world, God bears witness to his own glory. Through God's word, God bears witness to his own glory. The first book has been referred to as general revelation. And the second book is known as special revelation. And Psalm 19 lays out both of these books for us. And we're going to see that they both bear witness to the one true God. And so let's read God's word together this morning. Psalm 19. This is the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, and even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless. And innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. 
Now, just on the surface, if you look at the structure of this psalm, you can see clearly there are three clearly defined sections. And the first is in verse verses one through six. David is celebrating God's creation. But then you see a shift in verse seven and David begins to celebrate scripture. Verses seven through eleven. And then in the last section, verses twelve through fourteen, David through his prayers, you see he's anticipating the glorious gospel of the grace of God. And so from these three sections this morning, I want to exhort you to love God's world, to love God's word, and to love God's gospel. That's where we're headed this morning. Love God's world, love God's word, and love God's gospel. We'll start in verse 1. This psalm starts by zoning in on creation. And we are told in verse 1 that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, God's handiwork. So what happens in Psalm 19 is David focuses on two, two things in these first six verses, the sky and then the sun. But really, those are just illustrations for the whole world. They're just stand-ins for a larger category called creation. And so when, when David says that the heavens declare the glory of God, he doesn't just mean the sky does and the earth doesn't. He means that all, all declares the glory of God, all of God's creation, everything that God has made, and the sky is just illustrating that. It's a perfect illustration of this truth that general revelation bears witness to the glory of God. And once you understand that, you see that Psalm 19 is portraying God's entire world is preaching all the time. In other words, Psalm 19 portrays a sermon from the world that we live in that, that this world is, is a preacher literally heralding the glory of its maker. But this sermon is not like any sermon you've ever heard because there's no words to it. It's a wordless revelation. It's a wordless sermon. You see this paradox go back and forth in verses 2 through 4. Creation is preaching... And there's a voice and speech and words that go out, but not audible words. No audible words are heard. You see this in verse 2. Day to day pours out speech, yet verse 3 says there is no speech. Is there speech or is there not speech? It's speech of a different kind. Verse 3 says their voice is not heard, yet verse 4, their voice goes throughout the whole world. The voice of nature. It's a wordless sermon. In fact, the Net Bible translates verse 3 really well, and it says it this way. It says, there is no actual speech or word, nor is its voice literally heard, yet its voice echoes throughout the earth. It's a wordless sermon preached by the creation, testifying to the glory of God. This is the book of nature. David says, creation is preaching to you this morning. It's preaching to you your whole life long. And the question for you to ponder is, are you listening? Are you listening to this sermon? 
There are three things that I want you to notice about general revelation, this creation sermon from these first six verses. And the first is I want you to notice that that this sermon is constantly being poured forth. In other words, general revelation is constant revelation. And you see that in verse two, day unto day, night unto night, this speech pours forth from the world that God has made. In other words, we want to learn about general revelation, rightly the book of nature. It's not something like, hey, God spoke to me through general revelation this one time when I was 20 and it was awesome and I never heard it again. That's not how it works. Day unto day, it's being replenished. The knowledge of God is being replenished in this world. It's surrounding you all the time. You can even say it's in your face. That's how close it is to you. That's how constantly it proceeds from the world that God has made. It's a continuous sermon, a perpetual proclamation of the glory of God. You could call it a song stuck on repeat from the Garden of Eden to the New Jerusalem, testifying to the glory of the maker of this world day unto day, night unto night. This sermon is God's witness to us. That's how the Bible talks about general revelation. It's a witness that God has placed in this world. The Apostle Paul calls it this in, in Acts 14. Verse 17, we find out that God witnesses even to idol worshipers. In other words, even if you're a pagan idol worshiper and you have never heard the name of the one true God and you have never read one paragraph of Holy Scripture, the Bible says that God has been bearing witness your whole life long through the things that have been made. Paul says it this way in Acts 14, verse 11, that God has not left himself without his witness. He he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So perpetually, as we live in God's world, we are to be reminded That this world is not running by itself. It hasn't been wound up like a clock set to the side and it's just running its own thing. No, this world is being governed day by day, night after night. It's being governed by its maker. And that government of God over his world is his witness. That's his witness to you. He is the God of the sky and the ocean. The God of the mountains and the plains, the God of the plants and the animals, the God of the biggest things and the smallest things, the God of stars and galaxies, the God of protons and electrons, the God of the sunrise, the God of the rainfall. He's the God of everything. And the Bible says that he's good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. This is who he is. He's the creator. He's powerful and he's good. This is the the testimony of creation to the glory of God. One of the things that that this sermon shows us, that general revelation shows us, is the backwardness of this way of thinking. The way of thinking that says, man, I wish God would speak to me. God never speaks to me. God never talks to me. I wish God would talk to me. I just want to know what God is like. I just want to hear God speak to me. General revelation shows you the foolishness of this. 
Because general revelation says, open your eyes. He's preaching to you every day, your whole life long. You live in his world and it's bearing witness to his glory. It's all around you. I want you to think about this morning of all the times in your life that you have been made to feel small just by the reality of living in God's world. Think about that. Think about Every time you've encountered something in creation that God used in your life to draw your heart to transcendent things, that God used something that you can see to remind you of this reality that you cannot see. It's all around you. Every time you've looked at the sky or the stars, whether it be last week or when you were five years old, every time that you looked at the stars and wondered what's beyond them, Every time you you stood beside the ocean and wondered, who made these waves? And when did they start? And when did they stop? Every time you felt the warmth of the sunshine your whole life long, the ball of gas that burns in, 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 in thousands of degrees, 100 million miles away from you is God's thermostat. Keeps us just the right temperature. Just so happens your whole life long. You have been cared for, provided for. God has preached to you his existence, his power, his glory your whole life long. And every time you experience these things, you are hearing this wordless declaration of the glory of God. And it's not just that creation told you God is there, though creation does tell us that. It's also that creation is telling you constantly that he's good. And you see this in Paul's phrase in verse uh, chap, uh, Acts 14, uh, verse 17 that we read, that he's the God who satisfies us with good things, with food and gladness of heart. It's not just that he exists, it's that he's kind to all. He causes his sun to shine and his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. You've known it your whole life long that God is, that he's powerful and that he's good. Not only do you get to eat in God's world, and that's a testimony to God's goodness to you, that you are a rebel and yet you haven't starved to death in God's world. But it's not only that. Look how good God has been to you. He satisfies your heart with food and with gladness. This means that every time you have ever felt temporal pleasures in this world, whether they be the daily kinds like biscuits and gravy, Our black coffee, the only way coffee was meant to be drinking. Those temporal pleasures that God, those good things that God had given us. Every time you said, man, that was good. That was a sermon to you. That was God's witness to you of God's goodness. But not just the daily, you know, uh, 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 lesser temporal pleasures, but the best things of this world. The best of God's temporal gifts. The joy of friendship, every time you've experienced it, or the joy of the birth of one of your children. Think about that. Think about those good gifts of God that he scatters abroad throughout all the world. That was a sermon to you. That was a sermon to you. And every one of us are confronted with this testimony of nature every single day. And the question is, who do you praise for those gifts? Who did that? Who gave you that? Who provides for you your whole life long? Who holds everything together by the word of his power? Who do you adore? 
Who do you fall down and worship? Who do you praise? Who do you thank? This world points beyond itself to its maker. It always has and it always will. General revelation is continuous. Continuous. Day unto day. Night unto night. Number two. General revelation is a universal sermon. It's a universal sermon. The sermons that you hear are not like that. Like we're here today and they can't hear what we're saying in Afghanistan. Okay, It's not a universal sermon. Okay, Look at verse 4. The message, where does it go? It goes to the end of the world. To the end of the world. Every single day. Verse 6 says it in a different way. There's nothing hidden from its heat. In other words, general revelation is inescapable. There's nowhere in God's world that you can go to hide yourself from this testimony of God in nature, from this witness of God. To be, just to be alive in this world is to receive general revelation. Everybody that has ever lived has heard this sermon their entire life. And there's a conclusion that the scripture makes several times over the universality of general revelation. And one place is in Romans 10, verse 18, where the Apostle Paul actually quotes our text. He quotes Psalm 19. In the context, he's talking about the gospel. And in the context, he says, but they haven't all heard. So he's talking about the gospel, the, the, the special revelation of God. But then he quotes Psalm 19. He says, but they all have heard. In other words, in that context, the universality of general revelation renders, listen, Every human being accountable to God for their sin. It renders us guilty and accountable to God for our sin. And there's no exceptions because it goes forth to the ends of the earth, to the end of the world. You could live on an island in the Pacific Ocean and never know an alphabet of any form and the Bible says that you've been hearing general revelation your whole life long, every day. It's universal. It's universal. Therefore, every person who's heard it will be held accountable to what they've done with general revelation. Number three, general revelation is a joyful sermon. And you see this in verse five. And I think this is a beautiful uh, picture of creation. David pictures the son running like a strong man in his joy as the sun rises and spans over the sky every single day. He says that the sun is like a strong man running its course with joy. And I want to remind you this morning that nature joyfully obeys the decrees of God. Nature is God's servant. Nature joyfully obeys the commandments of its God. Joyfully declares the glory of its maker. And this means that every single day, there's a joyful proclamation of the glory of God. The glory of the blessed God. The glory of the happy God. The scriptures say this in other ways. In Psalm 33 verse 5 the psalmist says this, the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And there are other places in the Bible where, where, where you, you kind of, if you don't have the right lens, you're scratching your head. And you say, wait a second, this world, 
This world, is, is that the world that he's talking about? And the psalmist says, yes, this world, this earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. There is a joyful proclamation all over the world every single day of the glory of the maker of this world. John Calvin referred to the created world as a theater stage on which God displays his glory. In other words, the created world is, is like the ultimate divinity school. Constantly declaring the existence, the power, the attributes, the providence, and the provision of God. So the problem with creation is not creation. Creation is a joyful servant of its creator. The problem with creation is us. We are God's rebellious creatures. The problem is not general revelation. The problem is us and how we have responded to it. And the clearest place that this is taught in the Bible is in Romans chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul uh, begins to lay out not only general revelation, but the implications of general revelation. And I want to mention three of those as we move through Psalm 19. What, what do we need to know about general revelation? There are three additional things that I want to note from Romans chapter 1. And you can go back and read this text this afternoon. This is verse 18 through verse 32. And the first is this. General revelation is effective. Say, so what do you mean by that? God, through general revelation, actually accomplishes something. Okay? It's not just potential. It's not just hypothetical. It's not just, hey, this witness of God is out there. And if you study it for 20 years, you might grab it. It's not like that. It's effective. It's innately stamped on every human heart without study, without reading. In other words, part of being human is to be tattooed with general revelation, to have it stamped in you. And that's how he portrays it in Romans chapter 1. No matter if you never learn to read any book, no matter if you never read one verse of scripture, no matter if you have never been schooled in philosophy and in, uh, and in the ability to think rationally, no matter any of those things. Paul says this in Romans chapter 1 verse 20, God is clearly perceived. That's the language. The witness goes forth and everybody, it's, it's sufficient and clear and effective enough that everybody, listen, clearly perceives it. Paul goes on to say this in verse 21 of Romans 1, that in a general sense, every human being, every image bearer knows God. It's a striking statement that to be made in the image of God is to know God. It's effective that witness of God in nature is effective to give a general knowledge of God to every human being that ever lived. Second thing from Romans 1 is that general revelation is universally rejected. Paul says that because of sin and, and, and twofold, our imputed guilt in Adam and our inherited corruption from Adam, every human being by nature, rejects the truth of God in the created world. Here's how he says it in verse 21. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. 
universal rejection of that sermon all across the world every single day. Creation bears witness. God is. God is glorious. God is powerful. God is good. He's providing for you. They knew God, but they did not honor him as God. Therefore, third, third truth from Romans 1, general revelation is the grounds for revealing the righteous wrath of God. It's wrong for you to think that if someone never hears the gospel, they won't be judged by God. That's wrong. That's wrong. Paul says the exact opposite of that. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, against all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then he goes on. He doesn't say one word about rejecting the gospel. He begins to indict all creation and all humanity because they have rejected God's revelation in God's world. They've rejected that wordless sermon every single day of their life. The word went forth to the ends of the world. Day unto day uttered speech. Night unto night revealed knowledge. And they did not honor God as God. And Paul says, therefore, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. On revelation rejectors, on those who have heard God's sermon and rejected the truth, suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And so what Romans 1 does is it helps us see the limitations of general revelation. The problem is not general revelation, the problem is with us. Okay? Because of sin, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And this leaves us with a really big problem that we got a sermon stuck on repeat every single day, but we have a hostility within us that suppresses the truth. We will not honor God. We don't thank him and we can't change it. We can't do anything to save ourselves, both from the sins that we've already committed and we don't have any power to not keep doing the same things. And so there's some real limitations to general revelation, to the book of nature. And the main one is this. There's no whiff of a revelation of salvation and creation. Not a whiff of it. In other words, if what you really need is salvation from sin, you need the glory, the revelation of the glorious name of Jesus Christ. And you can never get that from going on vacation and looking at a mountain. You can stare at the Grand Canyon until your mouth is so wide and all that you, 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 you're about to lose your mind. But you'll never hear the name of Jesus. There's not an echo of redemption in that sermon of nature. There is no forgiveness of sin. There is no glorious name of Jesus Christ. And so we need something more. We need something more than the book of nature. And this is exactly where David transitions in Psalm 19. Beginning in verse 7, David transitions to the second book of God, the book of Scripture. And this is that transition from general revelation to special revelation. And I'll try to talk louder as that general revelation hits the roof. Um, it's called general revelation and special revelation for two reasons. One is the audience, the other is the content. 
In other words, general revelation reveals general truths about God to a general audience. Everybody hears it, but it doesn't reveal everything about God. Special revelation reveals special things about God to a special audience. Not everybody hears special revelation. Special revelation tells us things about God that are not revealed in creation. One example of that would be the, the triune nature of God, the Trinity. You don't get that. You get that from the book. You get that from uh, God's written word. You don't get that from nature. And so it's a clearer revelation. It's a special form. It's more. It's, it's more gracious. It's clearer. It reveals more. One of the ways you can see this transition in Psalm 19, this really is cool, is that there are two different names used for God in Psalm 19. In other words, in that first section, verses 1 through 6, where David says, the heavens declare the glory of God, uh, you, you see that in, in, in verse 1. The Hebrew word for God there is the word El, which is the short form of Elohim. It's a general title for God. God of power. But then, in verse 7, where you transition to special revelation, six different times, David begins to exalt the glory of Yahweh. And you see that behind the word English word LORD in all caps. Every time you see that in your English Bibles, you know that the covenant name of God, Yahweh, stands behind that English word. And that change, even in nouns, even in titles for God, shows you that we're as we move into special, special revelation, we're moving into covenantal truths about God, special truths about God, things about God that are not revealed in nature. This is why it's a better revelation, a clearer revelation. David celebrates special revelation, the special revelation of God in his word, and he gives us a rich description of the Bible. And he rolls through this several times over. He gives us, uh, he just stacks up uh, different titles for God's word, different attributes of God's word, and different effects of God's word. Attributes, titles, and effects. We'll start with titles first. What is the Bible? What is the book of God? The written word of God. David says, it's the law of the Lord. It's the testimony of the Lord. It's the precepts of the Lord. It's the commandments of the Lord. It's the fear of the Lord. And it's the rules of the Lord. Two things I want you to notice from those titles. The first is this. Notice that in every one of the names that David gives for the Bible, every single one of them relate that book to God. In other words, that of the Lord is on every single one of those. And I want that to be a reminder to you of the nature of the Bible. The Bible is God's book. Words from another world hot breath from the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's so closely united with God that whatever you do to the Word of God is counted as doing it to God Himself. In other words, when you cast those commandments behind your back, you cast it behind your back the commandments of Yahweh. Not just this empty Word. Whatever you do to the Word, you do to God. To honor God's Word is to honor God. 
To believe God's word is to believe God. To dishonor God's word is to dishonor God. And to disbelieve or disobey God's word is to disobey the person of God himself. Second thing about these titles is I want you to notice they reveal the authority of the Bible. In other words, it's not just the suggestions of the Lord or the life hacks of the Lord. Look at those words. It's the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commands, the fear, the rules. In other words, every one of those words remind you that this, this book has the authority to rule your life. To bind your conscience. It's like God's scepter in His hand through which He rules us as King. The Bible is authoritative. David then lists, really quickly in the back, raise your thumb if you can hear me. Okay. Titles of Scripture, six. Then David gives us ten a list of ten attributes of the Bible. He's just rattling them off over and over. It's no common book. What is the Bible? Well, he says it's perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean, it's true, it endures forever, it is righteous altogether, it is more desirable than gold, and sweeter than honey. Now think about how many of those attributes stack up like synonyms to basically remind you the Bible is trustworthy. It doesn't have any error in it. What is it? It's, it's perfect. It's sure. It's right. It's pure. It's clean. It's true. It's trustworthy. It's a book of truth. Your word is truth. Think about how huge of an error it is for someone who claims to follow Jesus Christ and say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I believe the Bible has errors in it. Think about how significant of an error that is. The Bible is the foundation of our faith. In other words, why does David multiply these adjectives, these descriptions of the attributes of Scripture? Why are they multiplied? Why are they said in so many ways? is so that we would land on this firm conviction that we have a trustworthy foundation for our faith. A flawless, errorless, 100% true foundation for our faith. We don't stake our souls on a 99% true book. It's a God-breathed book. And men spoke from God as they wrote the Bible as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We have a firm true and trustworthy foundation for our faith in Holy Scripture. It's God's Word from heaven. And you can bet your soul on it. Everything that God says is true. It's more sure than the sunrise. You ever thought about that? There's coming a day when the sun won't rise anymore. But Jesus said this, heaven and earth may pass away, but then he says, but, but my words will by no means pass away. The word of God is more certain than the creation. The creation is going to be replaced by new creation. God's word abides forever. It's a sure word. David also shows us the profitability of the Bible. So it's not just God's book, God's authoritative book. It's not just without error. 
He says it makes a real difference in our life. It makes a difference. And this is the same thing that Paul says in, in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and what? Profitable. This book makes its mark. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It does its job. It's the instruments that God uses to accomplish His purpose in our life. It's no empty word. David said it revives the soul. God's Word revives the soul. Listen to that description. That means that it is the instrument. God is life. He has life in Himself. How does He give that life to us? Well, the instrument that God uses to impart spiritual life and to restore spiritual life is Holy Scripture. This is how God restores our soul. This book can raise the dead. This book can pull you out of the deepest pit of spiritual depression. Why? Because it, it's perfect. It's the law of the Lord is perfect at reviving the soul. This means that as we understand what the book is and what the book does, if you feel dry, where do you go? If you, if you feel spiritually dry, what do you do? The Bible is the fountain that you run to and drink from. Why? Because it revives the soul. It revives the soul. God's word is life. Think of how many times that you've been downcast, discouraged, or caught in sin. And what did God use to restore you, to mend you, to reveal Christ to you, to reveal the wisdom, the ways, and the word of God. And what did it do? It restored your soul. What about the moment you were called from death to life and salvation? That came from God the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of Christ. David says that the Scriptures make wise the simple. Make wise the simple. That means that the Bible is God's instrument that He uses to impart wisdom. God is wise. He gives wisdom to us through His Word. And that means that, that your response to the Bible is what determines if you're going to be a fool or if you're going to be wise. And you need to learn that. What determines whether you're going to be a fool or wise is not how many graduate degrees you can stack up. You need to learn that. You can have a Ph.D., the very epitome of worldly education. And if you cast God's word behind your back, you are a fool. You are an educated fool. But the other side of that is true. If you, never, uh, if you never go a day of school in your entire life and you receive God's word and you submit to God's word, then you're wise. This is the instrument that God uses to impart wisdom. He makes wise the simple. David says that the Bible rejoices the heart and enlightens the eyes. And aren't you glad it does? In other words, aren't you glad that reading the Bible and seeking God every single day of your life is not like this exercise where you take this terrible medicine, takes, tastes awful, makes you want to gag every time, and you just choke it down because you know it's good for it. Aren't you glad that serving God is not like that? It's a delight. His words are a delight. We eat them and they bring us joy. 
The Bible rejoices the heart and enlightens the eyes. It brings us into the very presence of God. It's the best thing about the Bible is we find God there. We're drawn near to God through the words of Scripture. And what is God? Who is God? Our highest joy. Our highest good. Our deepest satisfaction. This is why the Scriptures rejoice the heart. And enlighten the eyes. David says that the scriptures warn God's servant. Warn God's servant. How many times have you experienced this? That you go to read the book. And what happens instead is that the book reads you. Your whole life is exposed by the words of God. That's exactly what Hebrews says about the scriptures it's living and active it's sharper than any two-edged sword it exposes the thoughts and intentions of the heart i got saved like that i was reading the bible because i wanted to be smart i wanted to know some things and and there was even a part of me that i wanted to read the bible so i could win arguments and what happened is i began to read god's word as i was cut by the holy spirit i was warned that my, my, pro, my path of living was rebellion against God. How many times could this be said over in this room? That our sins are revealed through reading the word of God. That we are warned of God's righteous judgment all over his word. Two-edged sword. David says there is reward for those who keep it. And that's just that principle that you got to learn, okay? you got to learn this. Whatever you do with the Bible, you do to God. And you see that. You, what do you mean? Uh, rewards those who keep it. That's not doing it to God. That's doing it. You mean keep the Bible? God will reward you. There is an unbreakable connection between God and His Word. You hear silly things all the time. Uh, we worship God. We don't worship the Bible. Almost every person I've ever heard say that has a low view of Holy Scripture. That what you do to the Bible, you do to God. You obey the Bible, you obey God. The Bible is God's Word, and whoever keeps it will be rewarded. David transitions in this final section, beginning in verse 12, and he begins to meditate or really anticipate the sweetest revelation. That God has ever made. The sweetest knowledge that has ever been revealed by the, the one true God is the knowledge of God as Savior and Redeemer. And you see this in David's prayer in verse 12. Notice for what David prays. In verse 12, David says this. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Do you know that you need a cleaning so deep that you don't even know the bottom of it? You need forgiveness for sin that you can't even name. Sin that is hidden to you. Faults that aren't even known. You need to be declared innocent from the things you have done. And you also need to be declared innocent for the things that you can't even remember anymore. That you're not even aware of. David wanted to be forgiven of his hidden faults. But he can't even discern them. <laughs> Think about that. 
He, he doesn't even know what they are, much less can he declare himself innocent of his sin. He's praying for the forgiveness of sins. He's calling out for mercy from God, for pardon from sin. But not only does David ask for pardon, look at verse 13. He asks for power over indwelling sin. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let not, ha- let not sin have dominion over me. Not only does he want his sin canceled and forgiven and washed clean, even the hidden stuff. He, w- he wants deliverance over sin's power, sin's mastery. He wants to live a holy life. And what I want you to understand is these are gospel prayers. He's asking for pardon. He's asking for power. And then in verse 14, David addresses God with a gospel name. He calls God his redeemer. His redeemer. Verse 14, he says this, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the greatest form of of revelation the gospel of Jesus Christ and you can even think about it like this if in verses 7 through 11 David is celebrating the written word of God then in verses 12 through 14 David is anticipating the incarnate word of God the Lord Jesus Christ In other words, what's the only way to get a favorable response to that prayer? Wash me clean. Declare me innocent. uh, Deliver me from my sin. Don't let sin have dominion over me. What's the only way those prayers are going to be answered? It's through the saving work of Jesus Christ. And really that ending to Psalm 19 is a good test for you. To know if you're reading the book of nature and the book of scripture rightly. It gives you some idea of what that response ought to look like. Is if it leaves you trusting in God as your redeemer. Not trying to work your way to heaven like climbing a ladder to God the creator. But if it leaves you trusting in God your redeemer. Crying out. That God would forgive you of your sins, even your hidden sins. And, 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 and crying out that God would help you to live a holy life. If that's, that's the response. That's the right response to reading the book of nature and the book of scripture. is to cling to, trust in the gospel. Now, as we close, I want to especially focus on general revelation. In Psalm 19. And the reason why is this. A lot of times as Christians, I think we're more aware of what general revelation can't do. And rightly so. It cannot save us. But the context of Psalm 19 is general revelation for the, for the believer. In other words, the only thing, it's not the only thing true about general revelation that it can't save us. The believer approaches general revelation differently than the lost world. And I want to exhort you, I want to help you to be fully attentive to life in God's world. That every step you take, every single day, you live in your father's world. In your father's world. We should live a life of wonder and adoration and thanksgiving. Every day. 
Lost people reject general revelation, but Christians have to learn to look with a trained eye on the world that God has made. John Calvin understood the book of nature to be obscure to us because of sin. And we see that in Romans 1. But he also referred to the book of Scripture as the spectacles or the lens through which we can again rightly read the book of nature. In other words, the problem is not creation, the problem is us, but the scriptures give us that lens, those glasses to put on, and all of a sudden we can see through the book of scripture clearly again to read the book of nature. An example of this would be the Bible is like going to a 3D movie, okay? And if you go to a 3D movie and you don't have those funny looking glasses, the screen looks fuzzy. You can kind of discern what's there, but it's fuzzy. It's not clear. But the moment you put those glasses on, not only do things become clear, you can see dimensions and depth to it, the lens. That's what scripture is like for the Christian as he or she lives in God's world. The light of the written word illumines general revelation. That's why Christians can hear that same sermon in nature every single day. And yet they are the only ones. We are the only ones who can return glory and honor and praise and thanksgiving back to our God. Because we have been gifted, graced that lens. We can see what we once could not see because of sin. You see an example of this in Psalm 29. Psalm 29 is a celebration of the voice of the Lord. And it's an awesome psalm. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord strips the forest bare. It calls the deer to give birth. This is what it like is like when God speaks. But Psalm 29 ends that only those in God's temple cry glory when they hear the voice of the Lord. In all of creation. That's the lens. That's the lens. And I want to exhort you. As Christians. I want to exhort you. Don't put your glasses down. I want to warn you. About the dangers. Of trying to live life. In God's world. Without holy scriptures. Don't put your lens down. Don't put your glasses down. In other words. I want you to be fully convinced. That the first move for everything for the Christian is to put the glasses on and say, what does God's word say? In other words, there's nothing Christian about going out in nature and just musing and meditating, you know, like some Eastern mystic and trying to reason your way back to secret counsels of God. Christians don't live like that. Christians live by the book. Christians live by the book. Think of, think of the obscurity that you would be led to okay, if you try to reason your way back to the origins of this world from nature, from your natural reason alone. Think about that. You would never know that God made man from the dust of the ground. You would never know that. You would never know that, that every human being descended from one man. You would never know that that in the, in the beginning, that there was no death. There was, it was totally perfect. But death came into this world. Uh, sin, sin came into this world and death through sin. You would never know these things. The Christian starts from Scripture. 
starts from Scripture. And we know everything through the lens of Scripture. You can get in big trouble in the Christian life by trying to figure out stuff with your own brain and your natural reason and ignoring God's revelation and His world. A perfect example of this is the human mind, the human heart, the human soul. I mean, this is a labyrinth of complexity. It's way beyond what what anybody's capabilities in here are able to sort out. But you know what? God's Word says a lot about the human heart. God is not silent about the human heart. And Christians don't start from ground zero when we think about the human heart. We start with the Word of God. This is why Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 says this about Christians. It is by faith that we understand the world was created by the Word of God. You ever think about that? Do we know that by reason or by faith? And the Bible says we know it by faith. And reason is only a supplement to faith. In other words, our very first move is to take God at His Word. What does God say in His Word? These are the lens. The the two books of God. The book of Scripture helps us read the book of nature. If you don't read that as your lens, you're in big trouble in God's world. You're in big trouble in God's world. But if you do... Use the book of Scripture as the lens through which you view the book of nature. It sets you up and equips you to be a worshiper. To give praise to God for all of His truth. For all, every echo of the glory of God that this creation in this sermon gives to God. It prepares you to see it. To thank God for it. To respond to it. Brothers and sisters, let's make it our aim to join with creation. And declare the glory of our God. To daily and intentionally look at God's world. And read the book of nature for echoes of God's glory. Proverbs tells us to consider the ant. Jesus tells us to consider the lilies and the birds. And Psalm 19 tells us to consider that the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Let's ask for eyes to see. Let's pray. Father, we lift up our hearts to you today. Lord, we proclaim that all things are yours. Lord, you're the fountain of everything good. You're the fountain of all existence, Lord. You made everything visible and invisible. You made it all for yourself. God, we ask that you would tune tune our hearts, Lord, with the purpose of all creation. Give us growing and even burning desires to see you glorified in all things. In the biggest of things and in the smallest of things. And Lord, we pray that you would make us a church full of disciples, that whether we eat or whether we drink, that we would do everything to the glory of our God. Lord, we lift up this prayer. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.